0: A philosopher once asked, Are we human because we gaze at the stars? Or do we gaze at them because we are human? Pointless, really. Do the stars gaze back? Ah, that's a question. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Stardust. This is the story of how Tristan Thorne becomes a man. For to achieve it, he must win the heart of his one true love. Part of our DC Comics Retrospective Series. From my earliest youth, I lapped up the stories. People always told me they were nothing more than folklore, but my heart told me they were never true. Hosted by Arnie. You're strong and courageous. And cunning, most importantly, cunning. Jacob. You're the star. You're the star? Really? <laughs> oh, um, may I just say in advance that I am sorry. And Stuart, new king of Stormhold, whichever of you fine fellows might be. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Have no fear. No one on this vessel will harm you, but there are plenty of would. Listener discretion is advised. All right, Twinkle Toes, I'm going to count to three. One.
1: Today, we're discussing Stardust, starring Claire Danes, Daredevil's Charlie Cox, Sienna Miller, Jason Fleming, Mark Strong, Rupert Everett, and then, to get some DC comic ties, Supergirl's Peter O'Toole, Batman Returns' Michelle Pfeiffer. Peter old Supergirl. Wow, what? that's that's so harmful. You recommended that. <laughs> and Man of Steel's Henry Cavill. Yeah, okay, yeah. Directed by Matthew Vaughn. This is the falling star of now playing Arnie. Steward in L.A.
2: And this is the host who did slaughter a polar bear and offer its head to get engaged, Jacob.
1: Well, I see it worked out for you at least.
2: Yeah, polar bears, they're much more rare than diamonds. <laughs>
1: So,
3: gang, welcome back to DC <laughs> Comics. If there's one thing I've appreciated. Yeah,
2: is this what you expected, Stuart? <laughs>
3: Well, it's the one thing I've appreciated about DC more than Marvel. I'm not going to say they make better films. They make more diversified films. (laughs) I got to say they have a really strange catalog, partly because they don't have their act together. (laughs) I guess they're getting it together with this Superman v. Batman thing that we're building up to. But right now we're kind of picking up the scraps. So somebody tell me,
2: this was a comic book? I look to you, Jacob. It came out in comic book pamphlet form. It was prose, though. This is Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman, part of that British invasion that brought Alan Moore and Garth Ennis, a, a lot of the great British writers in the 90s. I mean, Gaiman is credited with Sandman. I don't know if you've heard of that, but Sandman can widely considered like one of the greatest runs of comic books ever.
1: Yeah, I know of Sandman. I haven't read it. Here's the thing. I
3: used to collect comic books. For two years, I went to comic book stores and bought comic books. I didn't buy superhero stuff, but I did buy comic books. I tried with Sandman. Man, they had the greatest covers. But you pick those things up,
1: it was incomprehensible to me. What was that even about? (laughs) And more importantly... Is it so valuable that as my friend had hoped he was able to put his money in that instead of a savings account to put his daughter through college?
2: No, always put your money in the bank over comic books or toys or anything like that. <laughs> what I'll say about Sandman and again this is this applies with like Alan Moore, these writers brought literature over to what was considered, you know, lowbrow comic book entertainment like Sandman there was an issue that was a riff off of Shakespeare that won a literary award and upset the people so much because like how could a comic book win this like that's not literature like they had to make a new category they were so upset a comic book won so Gaiman has since gone on to do novels I haven't read any of his novels but this Stardust was originally written as prose and there were Pictures, but it wasn't like comic panels. It'd be like, here's four pages of prose and then here's a picture kind of illu- – it was a storybook, an illustrated storybook more or less that they released as four issues and it was later you know, done as a trade paperback and I think they finally released it just as a novel.
3: Yes, they have because I picked that up. Because Neil Gaiman does have this reputation of of being uh, better than comic books. That there is something about him that like, oh, I don't read comic books, but I do read Neil Gaiman. Like, yeah, Alan Moore, Frank Miller, there's that certain strata that carries the aura of artist, And so I kind of wanted to know what is neil gaiman's thing here i could never make sense of sandman it would have these bizarre surrealistic painted covers and then you'd open up the pages and it was all about like hope and fate and destiny and were they gods i don't even know what it was
2: <laughs> yeah it was about the keeper of
3: the realms all my friends that liked ursula Le Guin I'm... and uh, those fantasy writers insist he's a great writer so i was going to prove it i've read it i'm not going to cover it books and nachos. But to prepare for this movie today, I did pick up the unillustrated version of Stardust, and I read it.
1: And I've heard of Neil Gaiman. I'm not a big DC Comics guy. I've never read Sandman. I kept hearing a lot about it. I was a little surprised when I found out it wasn't a spinoff series of Spider-Man's villain. So (laughs) what brings me to this movie and makes me excited for this movie is the director, Matthew Vaughn. This is the last film... ...that Vaughn has directed for me to see. We have reviewed X-Men First Class. We reviewed Kick-Ass, the first film I saw of his. We reviewed Kingsman, all films I was very passionate about. I went back and saw Layer Cake, and it was pretty good. It lacked some of the flavor of his later films. It felt much like a Guy Ritchie wannabe, and of course, Vaughn produced Guy Ritchie's films. But I thought it was pretty good... But the one I didn't see was Stardust.
2: I haven't seen Stardust, but I know a lot of our now playing fans, oh, you gotta see it, and there's a buzz. I mean, this movie made, like, over $130 I I don't know what its budget was, but that's a lot of money. Worldwide. I I feel like the audience is
3: bigger outside of America. I don't think this was a hit here.
1: Yeah, I don't think it had a huge American audience. According to Wiki, the budget on this is almost $90 so not a huge profit when you take advertising into account.
2: It does seem to have a cult following now, though. I I hear more about it than when it came out. Netflix thinks I'm going to give it four stars. We'll see.
1: And I had no idea who Matthew Vaughn was when this film came out, but I was at San Diego Comic-Con in 2007, sitting in Hall H, waiting for... I think it was the Spider-Man 3 panel. Might have been a different superhero panel. Oh, I was there too. That's right. We weren't sitting
3: together. But yeah, I was there for this panel.
1: I forgot. Yeah. And (laughs) I didn't mean to go to this. It was merely before something else I wanted to see. Possibly Terminator or something like that. And Marjorie and I saw the footage they showed of this. They showed a trailer. And we laughed so hard. Because of this faux fantasy, Claire Danes giving a bad accent, and then Robert De Niro as a period piece pirate? (laughs) That casting stunk like a litter box to
2: us. I remember seeing those commercials and just being like, no.
1: Yeah, that's how we were. We were like, wow, what a fucking stinker. What are they thinking? What are they trying to push on us? And- we were still laughing about it when we got the shuttle back to our hotel room and who did we piss off a couple of girls in front of us (laughs) these girls were probably about 20 and they turned around and like you don't know what you're talking about this movie's gonna be great the book is awesome i mean they really went fucking exorcist on me
2: i'll say this about the book and Stuart: you can tell me if you agree or not if you think you're going in getting tolkien fantasy No, Gaiman is going for fairy tales, and we're going to go to the land of fairies, and we're going to have witches, and look, if you dress up in period piece costuming and go LARPing and... So Renfair folk? Fireball, fireball! Maybe you'll like this. It's not my kind of fantasy i want lord of the rings i want orcs getting stabbed through the head it's not that kind of thing
3: yeah no orcs in this at all anywhere and and the book is very different in tone and in some ways in plotting than the movie we get here because you love the book would not be a guarantee that you would love the movie but yes i think you're right this did end up getting a big following i always knew people that had recommended even though I never really had any desire to see it and probably still would not have seen it had uh, we not been saying that this was the kickoff to the rest of the DC films <laughs> building up to.
2: Yeah, this is this is all the miscellaneous stuff. We haven't forgot about Watchmen, guys. We'll get there.
3: Yeah, that's. we should point out that, yes, we'll be doing Stardust this week. We'll we'll go back to the other side for Deadpool next week. And then we have the DC team-ups. So all those things people have been saying we forgot. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Watchmen. All of that is part of a retrospective we're building up to these new DC superhero team-ups. We're going to see the Justice League. So I guess that means we got to see Legend of the Superheroes. So all that crap is going (laughs) to get covered in the next couple months.
1: Well... I still wouldn't have seen this movie. Those two bitches on that bus (laughs) poisoned me against this film. I mean, if two strangers interjecting into a conversation in which they were not invited were going to berate me for prejudging this movie that looked like ass. There's a reason this was the last one I saw. But I started wondering if maybe I judged it too harshly because if Matthew Vaughn made it, then it's got to be genius, right? I mean, I would call Kickass, X-Men First Class, and Kingsman genius. Like, I still consider him to be the best filmmaker working today. What? Yeah, seriously. He doesn't make a lot, but what he makes is fucking gold. He makes
3: very entertaining movies. I, I, genius yeah. is a difficult word, and I, I don't bandy that around lightly. Neither do I. I think that, yes, his name attached is intriguing. He wasn't always the director of this project. It's worth pointing out, he had to fight for this. He had to pull it away from Terry Gilliam.
2: It would have probably made a yeah very different film than what we're going to discuss.
3: Yeah, I feel like there are elements of the Terry Gilliam draft here. There are visuals and cues that make me think, ah, Terry Gilliam. But he went off and made Brothers Grimm with... Matt Damon and
1: oh yeah that film
3: <laughs> yeah and uh, not a very satisfying fairy tale movie nobody was asking for him to make another one and so when Matthew Vaughn didn't get to make X Men three he made this instead
1: yeah this seems a little bit unusual I definitely would think of it more up Gilliam's alley than Vaughn's but still I was intrigued by that pedigree
2: yeah having seen. Those films you mentioned, Kingsman, X-Men, First Class, Kick-Ass, like, I'm coming to this optimistic, like, oh, maybe I just missed something. Like, I've enjoyed his other films.
1: And this has a great cast. I, I didn't know who Charlie Cox was when this came out. I'd seen him in stuff. And who is he? Well, now he's Daredevil. I mean, he is Daredevil from the Netflix series. (laughs) Big time.
3: I mean, I know people like that, but to be like, that's your top of your resumes. And then
1: Robert De Niro, big time (laughs) actor.
2: Yeah, well, I want to know why he's in this film. Who's got dirty pictures of him to get him in this movie?
1: No, look, I
3: love Robert De Niro from the 70s, 80s, maybe even the early 90s. But by 2007, he is not drawing you to a movie theater. He had done that Rocky and Bullwinkle crap. I mean, he had made a lot of garbage. Yeah, Robert De Niro is known for taking cheesy paycheck gigs here. There's nothing about this movie that was intriguing. I can honestly say there was nothing when I looked at the previews or the people involved that made me say, yeah, I'm going to enjoy that.
1: It's a fantasy film. Those who donated and heard our Lord of the Rings series a year and a half ago No, that isn't my go-to genre, but I was happy to get the opportunity to satiate some curiosity by watching it for this review. Well,
3: why don't you tell them what you
1: saw? Let's give them the plot. Let's see what we think of Stardust. Charlie Cox plays Tristan Thorne, an English boy who yearns for town hottie Victoria, played by Sienna Miller. Victoria does not return his affection, but when the two witness a shooting star... Victoria promises she'll marry Tristan if he returns the star to her. But to get that star, Tristan must travel beyond the wall that separates England from the magical land Stormhold, a land Tristan's father Dunstan had entered once before. Dunstan reveals that he had gone to Stormhold once where he met a beautiful princess. That princess, Una, played by Kate McGowan, was captive of an evil witch, but Una and Dunstan shared a night of passion that resulted in Tristan. Una had left her son a Babylon candle that allows instant travel to anywhere. So Tristan uses it to go to the star. But rather than a hunk of rock, Tristan finds out that in Stormhold, a fallen star becomes a gorgeous woman. This one named Yvain, played by Claire Danes. Tristan tries to take Yvain back to Victoria, but the trip is not an easy one. Michelle Pfeiffer plays Lamia, a wicked old witch who wants to regain her youth. Now do I mean wicked old or do I mean wicked? Figure it out, Maynards. She and her two sisters have lived for ages as they had previously eaten the heart of a fallen star. Now that a new star has arrived, they try to capture and kill Yvain so they can again regain their lost youth. And also, a group of princes are searching for a ruby. Their father, the king, played by Peter O'Toole, threw into the sky. So there's two MacGuffins in this film.
2: One MacGuffin knocked the other MacGuffin out of the sky.
1: Yes, the ruby collided with the falling stars, so now Yvain has the gem, thus becoming the personification of two MacGuffins. The princes kill each other to gain preference for the throne until only Prince Septimus, played by Mark Strong, remains, and he and his troops quest for the gem. Tristan and Yvain flee through many dangers, and along the way... They fall in love. When Tristan goes to tell Victoria he's over her though, Yvain is captured by Lamia. The star is about to be sacrificed when Tristan returns and joins forces with Septimus, Tristan wanting the woman, Septimus wanting the gem. Septimus is killed, but Yvain's love for Tristan causes her to shine so bright, Lamia disintegrates in its light. And with Septimus dead... Princess Una returns and tells Tristan he is the last male heir to the king, and he possesses the ruby. So Tristan rules as King of Stormhold, with Yvain as his queen. And the two rule for 80 years, and when their grandchildren are grown, the two use a Babylon candle to return to Yvain's home in the heavens. And there the two remain stars that will live forever as credits roll. Yeah,
3: that is a lot of fairy tale you just spat out there. I just I just want to put it out there. I it was a rude awakening when I read that book. How hmm,
2: yes. <laughs> How <laughs> fairy tale-ish this is.
3: Old-fashioned yeah. and antiquated this scenario feels. Particularly in the book which kind of falls into verse and I get the sense that Gaiman is intrigued by You know, reading, like, Canterbury Tales and Beowulf and, like, the classics. You know, he wants to emulate old world styles of writing.
2: And he's playing off of other fairy tales. Like, that Babylon candle, that's some, like, old English... Home and there's a unicorn in this film and there's a unicorn and lion in the book which is based off of some fairy tale like this was a thing alan moore felt like was the same way like let's take all these literary influences and and bring them into comics and and show that we could elevate and that's gaiman's like whole i think that's all he does is like here's old literature and i'm gonna respin it but still make it feel really old and antiquated which i don't know if that's a good thing
3: But well, i think it's a good thing if you're a medieval studies Professor or something like that. It's not my thing. I mean, I, I'm just gonna put it out there. I really struggled to finish that book. That book is very, very short and every page was agony for me. Like, I, I found very hard to stay focused because you can't really understand psychology of the characters. It's not written that way. It is, is meant to flow like, like a folktale. And so I just wasn't understanding what I was being told. So I was looking forward to seeing a movie that could kind of help me through this.
2: But does this movie help? Because I did the opposite. I watched the film and then read the comic. And when this film opens up, we're human because we gaze at the stars. Or is it because we gaze at the stars that makes us human? And do the stars stare back? I'm like, okay, I want to turn it off right now. This... This is bullshit, like this kind of ponderous gobbledygook that they're giving us right at the beginning. What is that beginning even doing? I don't know what that's who the scientist is that's like writing a letter back. Like, I didn't catch any of that.
1: Yeah, I thought this was setting up the plot, is that the scientist and the boy were going to team up and discover this wall and all of this together. But no, this whole thing, it's a little bit... Crazy, and if it wasn't for Ian McKellen being the narrator, it might feel extraneous. One conceit I do like, and I think I could have used some time
3: on the other side of it, but that there is a wall between a fairy tale mythic land and a land of hard science. So I think that because we start here with astronomers looking through telescopes, it tells us, okay, this is pragmatic England, but there is another one, the England of folklore, and we're going to see a character that lives right down in the middle, right at the entry point between one and the other, Yeah. It should have involved some people on the science side. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) Once he crosses over, there's no looking back. This thing is is mostly about witches and yeah, flying and candles. And there's just very little science in this movie.
1: Well, look at when this came out. You know, I didn't read the book. I didn't read the comic. But as a movie aficionado, this movie came out in 2007. Lord of the Rings had completed... They were starting The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I can see why this film, which feels to me like an amalgam of many different sources, especially C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, would be seen as a rife opportunity for a big budget film. And you talk about the hole in the wall, to me that is the wardrobe, right? You walk through the wall and you're in this magical land the same way you walk into that wardrobe and you're in the magical land of Narnia. They didn't bring in scientists to investigate the wardrobe.
2: But you don't bring up scientists and observing stars through telescopes if None of that matters.
1: Yeah, he was writing the character
3: back. I thought that that was opening up a line of communication we would see again. Yes! But I guess what it's telling us is that the scientific world has no business exploring what the main character... We're not even 100% sure who wrote him at all, but I presume that it is Dunstan, the father of our main character. And in the book, a lot of more time is spent on generations and... and Ugh...
2: So much time.
3: They at least abbreviated it. It's it's kind of just a prologue that we have a character who makes it across the wall. It's guarded well, in this movie anyway, it's guarded by a, a an old man. In the story it's it's much more serious. There's not a lot of humor in the book, and it's just sort of the position of the townspeople that no one is ever to go into the fairy tale land except once a year. So in the book Dunstan could go on that one magic day. Here, he just kind of runs past this doddering old guard. It makes you wonder why more people don't flee into the fairy tale land.
2: Yeah, there's a sense that Dunstan knows what's on the other side, but how does he know? Like, I guess it doesn't matter, because Dunstan ultimately doesn't matter. This isn't his story.
3: Yeah. I mean, you'd be curious of anywhere that's forbidden, so uh, I get the temptation to want to explore somewhere new.
1: I would have preferred to know that it was one magical day that allowed him to cross through... Because, yeah, why doesn't everyone... I mean, the wall even has a hole, you know? Mm -hmm. It's got a torn down spot.
2: It's not a very high wall, either.
1: No, you could probably vault it. Yeah. There's a festival every year, and so
3: people, like, you know, they don't look beyond the wall, but once day a year, they'll go out there and they'll see all of these things. It looks like that festival is happening all the time, the way they have it here, that he just goes and there's... Uh, tents where all these, you know, magic eyeballs and what have you, and
2: really poorly CGI'd eyeballs and tiny elephants. Like, ooh, this CGI is rough.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a little bit on the shoddy side. Fortunately, it's such a minor part of this film.
2: I, yeah, I was worried that it, we we're going to see more, but it ends here in this little fairy carnival or whatever this is supposed to be.
1: Now, I don't mean to slut shame Princess Una. <laughs> She's a slut. <laughs> He walks in and she gives him a flower and I'm thinking since she's a captive, she's a slave to a wicked witch and she announces herself to be a princess, I'm thinking that she's actually trying to get free or something. But apparently she just is really attracted to this guy and just wants one night and...
2: He must have been a good kisser because she sold him this frozen snowdrop flower thing for the price of a kiss. And then after that, she's like... Coming into this trailer with me, big boy.
3: I don't really understand anything that is happening here.
2: <laughs> I, I really don't. I can only describe what is being shown on the screen. Attributing motives? Yeah, I don't know.
3: I just want to break it down for people. If it sounds confusing, it is. <laughs> there is a princess that is turned into a bird, but sometimes she's a slave at a market for a witch, and she decides <laughs> to hook up with the one human that's crossed over there for reasons... That really are not clear in this movie. And returns to him nine months later to give him his son he didn't know that he sired.
2: And then we quickly jump 18 years later where Tristan's all growing up. But he's kind of a... He's a wimp. He's unmanly. Yeah, his dad's like was all daring and willing to jump through the hole to get to the princess's hole. But yeah, (laughs) his son... Yeah, he's he's bullied by Humphrey, by Superman, the Man of Steel.
1: Well, if you're going to be bullied, that's a good person to be bullied (laughs) by. But yeah, I was a little bit confused. I came into this movie knowing nothing. So I honestly thought that we were going to see an entire movie about Dunstan. So that we jump forward 18 years and it's about Tristan. Okay, all right, I'll take that. But that Tristan is so in love with Victoria, played by Sienna Miller, I I can see why he'd be infatuated, but... I'm glad the movie goes the way it does because I'm watching him beg for her affections and I'm like, you know, dude, you kind of need to move on and find a little bit of self-respect.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a classic scenario. We we see it in movies that aren't fantasy-based. Teen Wolf, that basically that the nerd <laughs> loves the popular girl when the girl he should be with is closer at hand and more down to earth. That character hasn't shown up yet and and indeed, she isn't supposed to be down to earth, but uh yes, this feels in the movie version, it feels like it's telling us he's wanting something he shouldn't have. When I was reading that book, I thought that these were the fairy tale lovers. And I think we're led to believe that. That Gaiman enjoys leading you to believe that this is the story of a boy so infatuated with a girl that he's going to go catch a fallen star for her.
2: Yeah, but not this Tristan. I mean, he is such a pushover. Like, I don't want to watch this person's story because he is such a wimp. He's like willing to do whatever for this Victoria that obviously has no interest in him.
3: I'll be a little even crueler. Who is Charlie Cox? I think this was maybe his first movie. Who thought he was a leading man? Like, why would anyone want to watch a movie with this guy? There's just nothing appealing about him.
2: He's Daredevil, didn't you listen? Yeah, 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 whatever.
3: I'm not going to watch that show. (laughs) Well, you really should watch that
1: show. But I should watch that show? (laughs) Yes, you should watch that show. It's a good show. But he'd worked in other stuff before than mostly European stuff. It is kind of a ballsy move to bring this guy who was mostly an unknown and give him the lead... I think he pretty much works given that he's supposed to be a wimp. It's not like we're supposed to be seeing
2: Superman here. But what is his one redeemable, like, quality that makes you want to root for him? Like, usually there's one thing that they're good at or something, but him, ugh.
1: He has heart. He's earnest. He wants to find love. And I believe that this movie, based upon both the scathing discussion I had at San Diego (laughs) Comic-Con, as well as my own analysis... I think this movie is aimed more at a female audience than at a male one.
3: Or at least wrote one inclined to believe in true love and destiny and things that we don't talk a lot about here at <laughs> Not
2: Play.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I think the fact that he is a good, honest man looking for love is right there a relatable quality. And women will see him as cute and feel like he should be able to find love and men may relate to them because... Maybe I'm the only one on this podcast who's ever pined after someone who didn't give a shit about me. But I find that to be a relatable situation. Oh, no, no. This is very relatable.
2: No, I yes. I, I think we've all been in that situation. But at least I don't want to brag too much. But, you know, I have some redeemable... Like, there's things that I am good at. I don't... <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't want to brag, but I have a redeemable quality. <laughs> yes, Jacob. You do.
2: You do. No, but like Tristan, like he gets fired from his grocery clerk job because he wants to go on a walk with Victoria. Ugh. He's just... He can't even keep a job.
1: I think that's sweet that he likes her more than his job. Now, admittedly, I have friends who have lost jobs... Because of girlfriends and I call them idiots. But here I'm finding it sweet. Yeah, he's a
3: dreamer. I get that. I, For me, it's strictly the performance. I feel like another actor in this, I might get that charm. I just don't think this guy's appealing. I just don't. He's just not someone
1: you want to pay attention to. No, I don't. I can't deny that terribly. I think that he is fine for the role he's cast in. But this first half hour of the film was actually really hard for me to get through because we're introduced to a lot of characters. We're introduced first to Dunstan, then we're introduced to Tristan, and then we're introduced to both the princess and Victoria. And then we see Victoria has another beau, played by an also pretty unknown at the time, Henry Cavill. And as if this all isn't enough, and it really is because I'm not really linking to the characters, All of a sudden, we jump into Stormhold and meet Peter O'Toole, the dying king, with four surviving sons, all of whom are
2: willing to kill
1: each other for a chance at the throne.
2: Yeah, well, he's had nine sons and they've slowly been killing each other off, but they're all around because they stay as ghosts and like... I don't know if they could see the ghost, but... And all the sons are named after numbers. Primus, Septimus. You've just given the film away. There's a princess. I bet you she's a princess to this king. And you have Tristan, Try Three. Like, that's a number. I, I'm i reading the bones here. I, I see where this movie's going.
1: Oh, I didn't see that. What what number is
0: Septimus? Uh...
2: Seven.
3: They're all named
1: after, yeah, yeah. The, with, with their birth order. Oh, okay. Primus is the first, the oldest in...
0: Secundus. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean...
1: Okay, well, I, I got Tertius and Segundus, but Septimus is beyond my knowledge of yeah. how to count at that level. Yeah, I think Spanish.
2: Uh, it, it's all those Latin roots.
3: <laughs> I have an idea to throw out here.
1: Wouldn't it be more
3: helpful just to be sp- here in this realm and not play with the wall. Like, I don't know what you really get about the quote-unquote real world, which doesn't feel very real. It feels as artificial and quote-unquote enchanted as the other side. It just doesn't have as many magical powers. Wouldn't it just make sense that Tristan could just be one of these brothers and we wouldn't need all of that crap, of the setup. We can just have it be this guy that's supposed to be going after a necklace and he ends up falling in love with the star that it hit and knocked to the ground.
1: We could, but I think if you look at this as a fairy tale scenario, and this is such a trope in stories, is that you live in this real world, like the Neo scenario, where you want more than your average boring life. And so he wants more. He needs to discover this kingdom. That makes it even more special that he's discovering magic and that he's a stranger in a strange land. If he'd grown up around this, it would not be as interesting a tale. And we wouldn't have this avatar into this world who we are using to find out as things are explained to us as they are to him.
2: Well, I got an avatar into this world and I don't know how much I still understand it, but we're going to find out is dad could have just told him everything at any time. Like it wasn't, Again, Tristan, you suck. You take no initiative. Like, your dad's going to go, oh, yeah, by the way, here's all this magical stuff that was left with you so you could go on this journey. It's just, uh, I I don't like Tristan, so I don't care if he's from our world or from Stormhold.
3: Yeah, that's exactly it, is if we were in a world that felt like ours... It would be magical to discover this crack in a wall that took you to another realm. But all of this feels so romanticized. You know what I mean? Everything about this feels so precious.
1: It is a romance!
3: Well, then there is no escape from it. Why not just stay on this side of the wall? There's no reason to run off. If you don't create a harsh environment, fantasy and fairy tale doesn't offer anything new. I do think if Terry Gilliam were directing this, this would not be some enchanted little village. He tends to focus on the real world as being very harsh and nasty. Maybe sometimes... Too harsh. But if you look at Time Bandits or, you know, Fisher King, any of that, I mean, there is a world that you want to escape from and thus the appeal of fairy tale land.
1: And I think Tristan is trying to be more than he is. He's trying to grow. But again, in this first half hour, I'm not really getting that because we are introduced to these princes there's four of them still around. You say you could streamline the story by making Tristan one of the princes. I think you could streamline the story by having less princes, but I understand that this is supposed to be a
2: source of comedy here. This is a comedy movie. <laughs> Because I understand in an intellectual way that there is a thing called humor. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say it's funny because, of course, it's not. But yes, this is
3: supposed to be working as a charming laugh riot. And you know what? Indeed, this almost works. The idea that all these brothers have gathered to watch their father on their deathbed and Rupert Everett gets pushed out the window and ends up being one of the ghosts is. I mean, I, I get that. That this is a family that doesn't care about each other, they don't even care their dad dying. They just want the crown. To me, that's more compelling than anything from the town of Wall. I guess that's all I'm saying is, we don't spend enough time with these brothers for them to ever feel really integrated with the story, and yet I feel like there may be more interesting characters.
2: Yeah, I think Mark Strong, Septimus... and his bad wig he should have just killed all his brothers off here at the beginning the fact that we're gonna have multiple brothers here at the beginning is just belabors the point where i mean next we're gonna get three witches we already had one witch with una now let's get to three more yeah this though i'll give it some credit here michelle pfeiffer first
1: of all she looks amazing for 49 Except when she's under this haggard age makeup. I was like, actually, yeah, she's a yeah.
3: raggedy old woman, but I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> Once she eats the rest of her star she has in a little cup or whatever.
1: I really thought that the other two would also turn out to be famous people because I was really getting a Hocus Pocus vibe off of these.
2: Yes, thank you. I've never seen Hocus Pocus, but I know that's a big deal with like Disney yeah. people. And yeah, I was totally thinking Hocus Pocus throughout this. I was also saying those words to make it go away.
1: And also I got a little bit of Witches of Eastwick, but that could be because Michelle Pfeiffer was in both. Yeah. Practical Magic. There's
3: a whole The Craft. There's a whole bunch of shit with witches and I never watched them, but yes.
1: <laughs> oh, I love The Craft. And I love Witches of Eastwick. Uh, practical Magic. You do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I recommend on both those and not recommend for natural magic. But this one, I like the quest. I understand her motivation. I get that we now have a bad guy. I mean, the princes are buffoons, but they're not bad guys. They're just greedy. They're murderers. Of each other. But they're not going to hurt
3: the character we're supposed to like that falls from the heaven.
1: Yeah. They're just in a battle royale.
3: Yeah, they just want a necklace. But this witch wants to eat the heart out of our star. So she can't get what she wants without taking the life of someone we don't want to see harmed. Theoretically. So she's
1: the bad guy. Yes. And in the midst of all of this, at the half an hour mark, comes Claire Danes. And I knew she was in this movie. I was surprised she wasn't the Sienna Miller character when I thought that was the main romance. But no, she is Yvain, the
2: fallen star yeah who got knocked out of the sky when peter o'toole threw his ruby into the air she was already a falling star she just
1: happened to hit the ruby i don't think the ruby knocked her down no
2: no she says
1: that ruby brought her down oh it did yeah i don't know how it might read to someone that hasn't read the book it's very
3: very clear they throw it up there it literally the way that it plays on the page is he throws it up into the heavens and boink She falls. Yes. Bam, like a physical
2: comedy bit. Oh. You say you feel the witch is the evil one because she wants to eat the heart of Claire Danes, Yvain, the fallen star. I wish I cared about this fallen star. Like no personality here
3: fallen star indeed i mean boy yeah. claire Danes. <laughs> they said she was going to be the new meryl streep right that was always her rep who said that who said
2: it i want their head
3: when she came out on the scene in the early 90s she was spoken in the same breath as winona ryder and uh, lots of up-and-coming actresses she did a
1: movie with winona
3: yeah she had the it girl status my so-called life Set people up with the expectation she was going to be a major star.
2: All I know is T3. That's all I know.
3: Romeo and Juliet was a a hit with the young audiences. I I don't know that it best demonstrated her acting ability. But right after that, she just kind of
1: vanished. And I didn't see her again, really, until Terminator. Yes. And Claire Danes, I mean, she was awesome in my so-called life. I can't say that it was an acting achievement because... She was just playing a love-struck teenager. I do think she's a good actress, but that role, it never felt like she was reaching. It felt like she was just a Gen X avatar. I know so many people who love that show. I actually really got into that show after it was canceled and was endlessly rerun on MTV. I've seen her in a lot of other stuff since then. Home for the Holidays, Romeo and Juliet, U-Turn, But yeah, she just is in a lot of stuff I don't want to see, like... Mod Squad. Stardust. Yeah, Stardust.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to give her a real strong compliment. When Homeland first started, those first couple seasons, phenomenal. And she is fantastic in that show, deserved all of the praise and the Emmys that she got. I lost interest in that show. I hear it's okay, that it, it but I'm not going to watch it anymore. But she proved to me in that series she was capable of, of great dramatic range but I oftentimes feel like she's in things I don't want to see. And uh, the way that they have this set up is that a star has fallen from heaven and she's the thing that everyone wants. It would be nice to have somebody in the part that you want to see, but...
2: Well, I think she does fine
1: here. I think she looks really good the way they've made
2: her up. Here's my problem, and I'm going to compare this to a film It's been a very long time since I've seen it. It has a strong following. I think for many of the same reasons as Stardust, the Princess Bride. Like, Buttercup. I don't know what Carrie Elway sees in Buttercup. Like, she seems so bland. And I feel like Yvang is the same way. Like, she is so bland. I don't... I I mean, she sparkles, and I guess Tristan digs that later on. But no personality here. I, I just... I don't see why you'd want to go through what you do... For this woman. He doesn't want to do it for this. I mean, this is this is the setup. Well, I know at the beginning, but he's going to go through a lot of shit for this person. And I don't see her have an arc where she becomes like some desirable person.
3: Well, it's there. But whether you are charmed or won over by it is another matter entirely.
1: No,
2: I'm not. Short answer.
1: And I actually am because when she shows up a half an hour into this, I actually want to turn this movie off. This whole thing was such a jumble that when Claire Dane shows up, I'm like, I knew which way the arrow was going to point, I thought. Yeah. I'm curious to know when you wanted To keep watching it was not Here when he puts a leash on her And starts to drag her to See Victoria
2: Wait 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 we've jumped we got to Talk about how Tristan finds this star He's like oh I gotta go get this star For Victoria and his Dad's like oh yeah here's a Babylon Candle like here's all this stuff about your mom Think about your mom and it will Take you to her she's always thinking about You I think this is gonna be like Oh reconnect with my mom join up with her and then we'll get to the star you know he just wants to get some poontang from victoria and go straight to that star with that damn candle you think about where you want to go with that candle and that's where it takes you
3: right he promised victoria that he would get that star bring it back to her she thinking that's an impossible thing laughed but it's because it fell on the other side of the wall anything is possible in stormhold but, yeah, I, it's irritating to me that suddenly the old man guarding the hole can do karate, and the only way that he can get there is to light a candle. Like, lighting a candle is not a great dramatic device, to get a character to another place. I, I just want to put that out there. They do it several times in this movie. I find it incredibly irritating.
2: I mean, the, the witches are pissed off that they don't have Babylon candles anymore and that Michelle Pfeiffer is going to have to take this long journey of 100 miles to get to the start. Like, everyone wants to use those candles. Invent a damn car, you're magic people.
1: I am just going to say that, yes, a candle for travel sounds stupid, but is it any stupider than some of the other magic ignits we've seen that provide this kind of thing? Is it any stupider than a ring of power? Not really. Yes. Not really. It's just we grew up with rings of power. We didn't grow up with candles of teleportation.
2: Look, I played Zelda, jewelry was magical, candles you just burn stuff up with. If you wanted to travel magically, you used a flute. <laughs> See? Is this any stupider than a flute? It brought a tornado that took you places, yes! You just light a candle.
3: I'm not really big on any of this. You're asking me about rings of power, I don't even know what you're referring to. Lord of the Rings! Oh, okay. Well, they didn't they didn't zip around when they put them on, I mean... They got invisible, I mean, I'm just saying magical divine I'm not against a movie with magical devices. I am against a movie with plotting... That is like this, where it feels jumbled, the introductions of characters are messy, we don't really know where we are or who we should even care about. I've met all these people and I don't like a one of them. I think is what's the problem for me early on. Yes, this first half hour is a terrible introduction and I do blame Gaiman for a lot of it. I do feel like it's just inherent in the story and that Matthew Vaughn has done his best to spice it up with humor. <laughs> Question mark. The tagline for this movie is a fairy tale that won't behave. Huh? And I do think that what Vaughn is trying to do is to be irreverent. He's trying to tell you fairy tales, but then put twist on it so that it uh, feels fresh. So, you know, yes, there's this woman that was knocked out of the heavens that's going to obviously be his dream woman and he doesn't know it. But the joke of it is, is that she hates him and that they spend much of this second half of the movie bickering. She's trying to get away from him.
2: Yeah, maybe he shouldn't have just enslaved her at first sight. Like, he has that magical chain. I guess his mom was able to cut a link off or something and send that with him when he was a baby, so he has that magical chain. And that's the first thing he does. He's like, handcuffs, let's go.
1: It had an S&M vibe to me, you know? The little bit of a chain, you know how sometimes women wear collars to show their subs, even though the collar is just like a small necklace. That's one way to go with it. I went with the 1930s screwball
3: comedy that there's usually... A road trip in which two mismatched people that hate each other's guts are forced to travel together. And, you know, it's very funny to watch that evolution go from the thin line between I hate your guts to I love you
1: watching that transpire. is I, I love those movies. None of that is here, Stewart. Well, that doesn't even have to be a 30s film. I mean, I saw that... With John Cusack in The Sure Thing, which was a reference to those movies, I mean. I saw Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro do it in Midnight Run. Apparently a big
3: influence for Vaughn, he said he wanted to bring that into this movie that was part of the reason for casting Robert De Niro was he loved Midnight Run so much.
2: But where's the fun? Where's the witty banner? Where's the rat-a-tat dialogue between these two young whippersnap? Like, a fucking unicorn is gonna show up, and come on.
3: The problem is I'm not big on fairy tale iconography, but I can get over that. I mean, I enjoyed the movie Into the Woods. That was a fairy tale that won't, wouldn't behave. A much better one, I would actually add. It was, it was much more irreverent. But here, I think the problem is I don't really like anyone here. I mean, I
1: don't, I don't have any hopes. And during the first half hour, I completely agree with you. It is a horrible setup. There's too many characters, too many plots. That is a, Systemic problem in this movie is that it's chalked too full with too many characters that there's just not the screen time or the talent to really give credence to. And this isn't an ensemble film. Charlie Cox and Claire Danes are the stars. So to have all these other people with all these other agendas, it's very troublesome when they're all introduced in an unnatural fashion. When we're jumping between these stories like this, It's confusing versus having Tristan go into this land and be introduced to these people one by one.
2: And my problem is way past the half hour, and you nailed it, Stuart. I don't like anyone in this film. So when there's a stupid fantasy thing, like a unicorn showing up, it's just pissing me off more because I'm in a genre that I don't really like, and they this ain't misbehaving. This ain't showing me something that I can enjoy because I'm not laughing. I don't like these characters. And so now I'm annoyed. Where did the unicorn come from? In the book, there's like a lion and a unicorn... Like fighting each other. And Tristan, he does something. He figures out, oh, I can save this lion and then this unicorn. Like, Tristan does stuff. And here, no, Tristan goes. Where does he go? To find food or firewood? And the unicorn just walks up.
3: The way it plays in the movie, the way I take it is, because she is not of this earth, even in Stormhold, no one gets to see a star. You know, like she is it from the heavens. I think magical creatures are drawn to her. <laughs> Uh, so many people are drawn to her you know the witches want her the (laughs) brothers want her I mean I don't want to be an apologist for this I I think that Vaughn did an okay job streaming a book that had ideas.
2: Yeah he had tough material to work with.
3: I don't know how you flesh out some of this stuff. I mean a lot of it is just not there on the page and they they decided to fill it with a comedic take.
2: Put air quotes around comedic.
3: Yeah I'm not laughing and I'm never laughing at this movie. I do not think it's funny you mentioned Princess Bride. I think that might have been what they were going for Princess Bride is a funny movie. Into the woods a funny movie this i can't think of of a moment
1: that made me laugh there were a couple moments that made me laugh and they usually involve michelle pfeiffer's character as she starts going out she becomes this younger exceptionally hot older woman and she ends up encountering some farm folk and turns this guy into a goat to help pull her carriage and then later she decides to set up a inn so that as a cover. And so she turns the guy into a woman and the goat into a guy.
2: It's misbehaving. Are you laughing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I actually found it funny when the guy kept like eating cloth and chewing on stuff he shouldn't have. That, that amused me. And the fact that he had the goatee. I don't know. It was was simple humor, but... If you think that's funny, great. I just want to put it out there. I'm not jiving with
3: this humor. It's not funny to me, and there's really nothing else about it that's working. I'm hoping something's going to happen here, because this magical inn is what brings everyone here together. We've had two of the seven brothers remaining. One that I think we're supposed to like, Primus... Seems like the honorable one. He's teamed up with Tristan. And then we have Septimus, who's, I don't know, killing soothsayers or what have you. He's fallen behind. So these two guys come to the inn. Claire Danes Yvain has already come
1: to the inn.
2: It gets pretty sexy when Michelle Pfeiffer's giving her a rubdown and making her
0: glow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was kind of interesting. Whatever floats your
3: boat. But she basically is just <laughs> fixing her leg. When she fell from the heavens... She broke her leg. And the idea is she needs to be in the best possible mood to make her heart flavorful. Because she's going to cut out her heart and eat it. And that will be more delicious and maybe more youth-sustaining if she's smiling.
2: Yeah, it, it's more youth-sustaining the more she's shining.
3: Yeah, I, I guess that's an okay premise. You know, uh,
2: <sighs> I feel like there's going to be a lot of size in this.
3: I struggle with this. I do. I struggle with it because I don't know why I really should care about something so silly. But I'm trying. I'm really working very, very hard to try and be connected with this silly premise But the whole scene kind of just ends with a unicorn, like, busting in. and
2: Hey, we get the Babylon candle again. Like, there's a little bit left.
3: Yes. A lot of Das Ex Machina. A lot of, like, oh, conveniently things happen and our main character doesn't have to do anything. And I just feel like, again, why is Tristan our hero? He isn't really compelling.
1: Well, what I take here is this was the last use of the candle. So it's a way of getting rid of the Das Ex Machina... While introducing them to the main villain of the piece. And then the road trip really begins because now they can't just teleport anywhere.
2: But they're on a cloud because they thought about going to different places. So they're stuck on a cloud?
3: I don't know. Don't give me I can't. I don't even <laughs> really want to talk about the next half hour of this movie.
1: It's a magical land, Jacob. I mean, you're going to start questioning that? You played Mario, and Mario could jump on clouds. I do feel
3: like Terry Gilliam had some fun with this kind of stuff in Baron Munchausen. If you ever saw that movie...
2: Oh, I love that film. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, we saw like the idea that uh, sailing and ships in the stars, that was an idea explored in there.
2: And that's the thing, if you have characters I like You have action that's exciting You have humor, if you have things that work I'll go with your stupid little fantasy and and sit on a cloud The fact that lightning pirates are going to show up now And this is brought in for the movie This isn't even in the book I could have
3: liked this I mean, I do feel like it's a Gilliam touch And yes, it was not in the book To me, to make this kind of stuff I won't use the word shit (laughs) To make (laughs) this stuff work you need to fight against the twinkly, fairy dust element of it. You need to work extra hard to give us grimness and starkness so that when we get the enchanting moments, it's nice, it's welcoming. If everything is so fluffy, it just becomes overwhelmingly cloying. And I just feel like Terry Gilliam would have found moments that were perversely funny, maybe inappropriate, shocking stuff. Everything that happens to these two just feels so
2: precious. They learn to dance and sword fight from the pirates.
3: Yes. All right. So we meet Robert De Niro, who is a butch pirate who's really a closet whoopsie, I think is how they refers to it. Yes. He's a cross dresser who really wants to be, you know, Nelly and not have to play the role that his
1: father pirate made him play. OK, I, whatever. All right. I found that to be rather amusing. Again, we his humor is subjective, but he was not working for me. He was living up. To every bad expectation I had when he was playing a pirate, when he was trying to put on that accent and really be a mean Captain Hook kind of person, he was not working for me. The moment he goes down there and starts becoming like literally a hairdresser, I'm like, okay, this is unexpected, and Robert De Niro... He is willing to go to places I never would have expected him to go for a paycheck.
3: Yeah, he's not convincing, though. I think it would be one thing if I felt like, oh, we're seeing the real him here. I think Robert is really struggling to present himself in such a flamboyant way, I think.
1: (laughs) He did watch Robin Williams in the birdcage and get his performance off that, I think.
2: I was going to say, Robin Williams could pull this kind of stuff off. De Niro can't.
1: It does feel like a Robin Williams
3: part. I know they also approached Stephen Fry, uh, you know, they they went with actors that were in personal life gay. They To go with Robert De Niro... They had Rupert Everett here. Why didn't they just put him in the role? Yeah, but he's not real. Rupert Everett's not really that Nelly. I mean, he's gay, but he's not really, I don't... Flamboyant in that way. I mean, you want an actor, a comedian, who really, you know, has some fun with it. Robert De Niro looks like he's struggling in all aspects of this movie. <laughs> and he just... It's not a natural fit for him, so...
1: And he's still doing the squint smile like Meet the Fockers.
3: I never saw Meet the Fockers, and I really don't want to see any Robert De Niro movie after <laughs> 1995, but...
2: You want to know how bad this film is? Like, Ricky Gervais shows up to buy lightning. I was so happy about that. Yeah, I was excited because I'm like, oh, maybe here's someone. He's funny. He's a comedian. No. Nope. Yeah, I don't know what he's doing here. At all. Yeah, I I could not tell you what his role in the plot... I know he ends up croaking like a frog at some point.
3: I guess what they're trying to do here is find parallels, that they have an ally, that Captain Shakespeare is afraid of what other people will think if he shows his true self, and that's kind of what these lovers are going through here, too. Yvain is falling in love with a guy that she doesn't want to. She's telling on herself because she literally starts glowing when they're dancing around on the deck. And then uh, Tristan, you know, he is pursuing Victoria, maybe for the wrong reasons, maybe because she's the prettiest girl in town and not because... He knows anything about her. I don't know. These conflicts aren't very interesting.
2: No, we we have moments, like, Tristan's going to run into Una and the witch, but Una's a bird, and he's going to get turned into a squirrel, <laughs> like... I don't know why all of this stuff is in here. Does this, any of this matter? Can't we just have
3: one witch? I mean, I really find it irritating. We have this Ditchwater Sal who has Una, the bird slave girl, that runs into Michelle Pfeiffer and they, you know, she does a witch forget number on all of this. It
1: feels so labored and intricate. It is too many characters. By the same token, again, I think they're going for humor with the witch fight and the you won't see the star even if she's standing in front of you leading to a lot of are you talking to me kind of jokes. They're putting it in here trying to make this wacky. None of the jokes are hitting for me. The only thing I can go on is that the performance given by Charlie Cox and Claire Danes tells me they're falling for each other even though I'm not quite sure why they would other than... Perhaps Stockholm Syndrome, but...
2: (laughs) (laughs) But we see Tristan cut a lock of Yvain's hair, and he runs off. He goes to cross back into Wall.
1: Well, that's after he beds her, though. I mean, they profess their love for each other and spend the night together. Apparently, yeah, for a medieval times...
2: Oh, read about, like, the Victoria Aarons. It's nothing like how you think. People were banging in the streets. Like, yeah. (laughs) Read the actual history. It is it is lewd.
1: Okay, well, this is not a Jane Austen story. I'll just say that.
2: No, that was all pomp and circumstance to cover up what was really going on.
3: All I have to ask is, Arnie, I feel like out of the three of us, you're the one that most gravitates towards romantic comedy. You're saying the comedy's not working... Do you want this couple together? I mean, do you want to... I mean, obviously we're being told that Tristan shouldn't want the girl back home, that he should be with the star. I think that's a weird lesson to teach. That, oh, no, you should disappear into a world of
1: make-believe. That's much better than dealing with reality. I mean, ugh. I do want them to get together because from the very beginning, the movie was telling me, and I got it loud and clear before I even knew that's where the movie was going, that he should not be with Victoria. And that the two of them are together and they're having the fun on that boat, splashing in the water together. It's working on a very basic level of, yeah, rom-com romance. And I don't see it as escaping to a land of make-believe. I see this as him leaving the boring home to go to a more exciting place. It's not like... He's off in a make-believe land any more than Wall, his city, is make-believe. He is venturing out from home and becoming self-actualized from the wimpy person none of us liked in the first act. Once he gets off Shakespeare's ship, and he's learned to fight, and he's started to flirt with Yvain, and really started to become a man, I get behind this character. It's pretty late in the film we're about an hour and 15 in
2: yeah too little too late for me
1: there's only 45 minutes left but about the time that yvain completely falls for him i'm like yeah this is a guy who's probably worth falling for now they do that silly roll in the hay that ever since attack of the clones Stuart makes me realize hey that never really happens yeah no it's <laughs>
3: embarrassing <laughs> But you expect it more in a fairy tale environment.
1: I mean, that is, you know, I guess an acceptable trope here. But yes, I have come to like him and I see the change in him. And I think Charlie Cox does a good job of some subtle acting that shows the character standing taller and being more confident. I mean, I think it's weird that he even feels like he has to go tell Victoria to fuck herself. I mean, if he's so in love... Why does he need to kind of go back and do an in-your-face?
3: Uh, that's, again, for the movie. That wasn't in the book. And it all transpires in the same way, but it it isn't played for the kind of fist-pumping like, suddenly this woman deserves to be humiliated. She didn't really do anything. She might be superficial.
2: Yeah, Tristan was the pushover that was making a fool of himself for her. It's not like she was humiliating him.
3: Yeah. She didn't lead him
1: on. I, did, I didn't get that impression, but She was playing with his affections, though. She would allow him to take her on walks and lose his job for her. She was using him to build up her own ego. And then to toy with him saying, if you bring me a star, I'll marry you when she has absolutely no feeling for him.
2: He offered to bring the star, like... You're putting a lot on Victoria that's not there. I think Arnie's
3: right that that's how we're supposed to have thought about her. But because I read the book and because we didn't have that much time with her, I just never came to the conclusion that she was a negative influence that Tristan had to break away from. I agree. I think it's the wrong impulse to go back and drop her in the dirt and have a sword fight with Superman and say, see, I've come back to prove that LARPing is a, is a great way of becoming a man. <laughs>
1: I think that was a bad character moment. I feel like more should have gone wrong from this. He should have learned that pride cometh before the fall. He should have had a major fall at this point. Like, honestly, I thought Yvain would die because she thinks... I didn't think she'd die forever. I mean, you know how things go in Snow White and the magical kiss and whatnot.
2: Yeah, they set it up that if uh, someone from Stormhold crosses that wall, she would turn into stardust, I guess.
1: Yeah, a big rock. She'd no longer be a magical human star. She'd be a meteorite that just thuds to the ground. She'd die. And so she is despondent because he didn't leave a note because he couldn't find a pen and the clerk misremembered the message. So she thinks he used her and left her to go back to Victoria. She is wandering towards the wall and I thought for sure that his pride would end up That she crosses the wall, turns into a star, he has to grieve, but this is all a land of magic, so something would
2: happen to bring her back. Better than what happens. I I like your idea more. And probably the
1: witches, because they want her back because of the heart, and so Tristan would have to make a sacrifice in order to bring her back, and then they try to eat her heart. That's where I thought all this was going. But no, he gets back in time, and she's just lured in by the witch, and taken captive, and I'm like, well... Okay, now you're just kind of an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I I don't
3: know that anything you said I disagree with, but I'm not sure it would help anything either. I mean, I think at, at this point in the game, it would be good to at least get some tension going. That she's a captive of witches that want to eat her heart out at least is a more satisfying conflict than she might cross a wall. (laughs) That's not that exciting. But, and then, you know, don't forget about Septimus, although this movie has done its best to, that he's (laughs) always like three steps behind. He had a duel with Captain Shakespeare. He has been tailing him. They're now partnering up to go bust into the witch
1: lair. It's funny to me that he's the last living brother. And yet it feels like the ghosts get more time on screen than he does.
2: I kept waiting for those ghosts to do something, but I guess they were misbehaving and they were just there for comedy effect.
3: Yeah. They're a chorus, you know, they're observing and there were cut scenes. I did watch some deleted scenes. They couldn't be heard, but they were screaming at Yvain to do certain things, to leave the necklace so that, you know, it could be found, you know, keep in mind, they have no interest in, In Yvain. They only want her necklace, which does nothing for her. She was hit by it.
2: Yeah, she just picked it up. She's like, oh, jewelry.
3: She doesn't need that necklace. The problem could be solved if she just said, oh, you want this? Here
1: you go. And resolved.
2: (laughs) But yeah, we get to the end. A big battle with the
1: witches. It's a fun battle. I mean, the effects are good. It's way too long. I like the... Reversals. I like that the two sisters take it. I like that there's a team-up between Tristan and Septimus because what the hell did they have to fight against each other for? They want different things.
2: Here's the one. I always try to find at least one compliment. I liked when Michelle Pfeiffer uses that voodoo doll to bring Septimus back to life. You know, she uses it to drown him. But then she controls it, and Septimus has a sword fight with Tristan. That was kind of fun.
1: It had a Beetlejuice feel to me for some reason.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a lovely vibe that they're trying to find that they just cannot with this, (laughs) the tone of this movie. But I think, yes, the idea of uh, enchanted slapstick comedy is, is what they want this to be. Although I think this is
2: supposed to be a little scary, right? Maybe? I mean, if you've seen, I don't know if you ever saw Coraline. Which is horrifying. Like, the the other mother with buttons' his eyes and kidnapping children. That's written by Gaiman. And that was like a stop-motion fairy tale for kids. Like, that is scary. Like, Gaiman doesn't shy away from that. But who's ever done this script? I don't know if that was... Matthew Vaughn or whoever, they've gone a totally different direction.
1: It was. It was Matthew Vaughn and his wife.
2: Yeah, they've gone a totally different direction than Gaiman does.
1: I'll say this. The corpse sword fighting was the moment that felt most like Matthew Vaughn. This whole time, I haven't felt like I was in a Matthew Vaughn film. But this one scene has the verve and the humor that I associate with Vaughn. And it's honestly a bit of a transitional moment because... I didn't feel like Layer Cake felt like Vaughn at all. And this film didn't feel very much like him, but I start to see glimpses.
2: You get 30 seconds of Vaughn here.
1: Yeah. What does
3: Vaughn mean to you? To me, he just means someone that takes formula, genre, and finds irony and, and new twists on old favorites.
1: While doing so with actors turning in perhaps career best performances, tight scripts that keep me guessing, and a, overall... Fun vibe that also can mix real heart-wrenching moments. You, like, think you're along for a fun romp, and then something shatters you.
2: Yeah, you think of Kick-Ass, and then what happens with Big Daddy, like, Mm -hmm. that's an emotional moment for this silly story, yeah.
3: That's one thing you never get here, is a sense of any real... Danger. I guess the idea that they'll cut her heart out is pretty
1: graphic, but I just don't think they'll ever do it. But yeah, there needed to be something. I mean, in Kick-Ass Big Daddy Died, in... Kingsman, the church. I mean, there were so many
3: scenes, really.
1: Yeah, and in X Men: First Class, Charles gets shot. I've just spoiled every Matthew Vaughn movie now. <laughs> but the ones that matter. <laughs> there's always the moments of actual emotion mixed in, and this movie does lack it. I think what they think is actual emotion. ...is the romance, but there's no stakes in this film. And, yeah, if they're trying to go Princess Bride and Fairy tale, maybe stakes are the wrong thing to want. But I would have liked something to bring me into the story a little bit more.
3: Yeah, I, I don't even know what's happening here at the end, that basically he cuts Yvain free, or rather... Lamia cuts Yavane free makes a big pronouncement that oh what does it matter to be young I don't need to eat your heart because my dear sisters are dead and then cackle 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 it was
1: all an act and I'm going to kill you my problem with this is she kills them by blowing up her own mirrors and they keep running towards the area with more mirrors yeah run the other way (laughs) yeah there's no more mirrors to explode back there and then what happens she shines. Evane shines. <laughs> the love she has for Tristan allows her to shine so bright that her light extinguishes the Wicked Old Witch. Okay, no one should ever write those words.
3: <laughs> you understand how bad that is, right? That is so bad that you never write those words down. That is a sin.
2: That is a Brothers grim thing. That is a fairy tale thing and, and if you're not willing to go with that mentality yeah you do not write those words down but that's what gaiman was going for
1: yeah love conquers all
2: it is fairy tale but th- 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 even though this ending is different even gaiman doesn't do that in his story
3: no, no no yeah you can dramatically show love conquers all in many ways that are very satisfying and romantic uh, she gives him a hug and suddenly there's some
1: glowing aura around her and then what She's just gone. Michelle Pfeiffer's just gone? Yeah, she couldn't stand up to the light. It was a magical laser beam. Oh,
3: fuck. All right. That's really sloppy. I, I just feel like that is lazy. Like maybe they ran out of... It almost feels like we ran out of money.
2: They could have had the unicorn return and stab her.
3: I, I'm better with that. I mean, I feel like this is the thing you do when you run out of money and you can't do what you had planned to do. Like, that I'll just hug you and, my, and our love power will shoot a laser into the witch.
1: You may be right because what I've read on this is Matthew Vaughn said, despite having almost 90 million dollars... They were having some budgetary constraints and some budgetary concerns, and he didn't get to do everything he wanted. So, maybe that is the reason for this compromised ending.
3: Yeah, I have to believe something else was going on here, but then again, maybe not.
2: Yeah, no, there's there's more problems with this ending, because I gotta call bullshit. Una, she's the last heir, but no, you can't have, like, a female takeover, so... Sorry, Mom, I gotta be the king now. You don't get to be queen, like... She was enslaved.
1: I am fine with a patriarchy. I really am. I mean, there are governments that do that. What bothers me about this isn't gender equality issues. What bothers me is this is the most obvious damn twist in the whole movie. When she says she's a captured princess in the first scene.
2: That's what I said. I called this out right at the beginning.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is so painfully obvious that... I feel condescended to when the movie decides to tell me all this. I'm like, everybody knew this. There is only one kingdom. So therefore there's only one princess. And as soon as Septimus dies, obviously Tristan is next in line for the throne. And Jacob, it wouldn't be dramatically satisfying if Una was suddenly queen. And now we had Prince Tristan.
2: No, no. In the book, Yvain and Tristan they actually instead of ruling for 80 years and then becoming stars they actually travel throughout the universe to prove their love and then they come back and reign you could add something like that easily solved mom dies they come back to reign after traveling gender equality the end
3: nothing you're saying is fixing what's wrong with this movie (laughs) I will say I hate the idea that there's a coronation ceremony in which Victoria and Humphrey and Captain Shakespeare have all come to watch. Like
2: who Shakespeare giving kissy lips to? There, there's some random guy. I, I, I couldn't. I don't know if it was Humphrey. I don't know, but he he was making eyes at someone.
1: I just wonder why they brought Victoria over the wall. Just to rub in her face. (laughs) That's what I'm saying is like, okay, you didn't
3: even believe in falling stars and all of that. And now you're in a magical kingdom where the guy you jilted is being crowned king of whatever. I guess they just needed an end to bring everybody together. That's, that's what endings should do. That's a fairy tale
1: ending. This is just a badly constructed story. I feel like bad for Victoria at this point, though. I was fine with her getting a one time in your face. Of course, they're playing it like, oh, I should be with him. You know, she's, they're really eviling her up with the wrinkled, snotty nose at this point, but it's still, just like, why did they bring you over just to do this to you? That's a little cruel.
3: Yeah, I, again, it's, it's a simplified moment. It allows us to feel superior. These characters aren't morally complex. I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, they get another candle, they're going to fly up to heaven. At least the book ended with some sense of tragedy that he was a man and he would die and Yvain would go on. They didn't
1: end up with a happily ever after. But this, this is pretty traditional fairy tale stuff. I would have been fine with them ending on the crowning. It's a little schmaltzy to then say they rule for 80 years and turn into stars. It works for me in Clash of the Titans, but it just isn't working for me here. I just didn't need them to... Have that 80 year rule and then become stars. I guess I didn't want to see them die either, but are they dead? I mean, are they still up there in love? I don't, I don't know what to read this.
3: As long as they never come back, I don't care. <laughs> I won't ask. I won't bother them. <laughs> We're not doing a sequel if it ever happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, we are.
3: Oh. No. So,
1: Jacob Stewart, so do, do you recommend Stardust? Jacob.
2: I, I recommend Angel Dust over this one. <laughs> Look, here. here's part of the problem. This is a genre that I do not care about. So Princess Bride, yeah, it's it's funny. I'll give it that. Otherwise, I wouldn't tolerate that. If that's your thing, if you like puffy sleeves and, and swashbuckling fairy tales and romance, maybe this will float your boat. I know it's got its fans. I'm not one of them, though. Like, this isn't my genre, and this film does nothing to get me to cross that bias. It doesn't get me characters that I like it doesn't give me humor that I find funny it doesn't give me action that is exciting like I ooh, it's such a failure how much nothing works it's shot fine I'll give it that like it's it's pretty competently made as far as like framing sequences and and shooting things but I just don't find anything on screen interesting here so no I do not recommend Stardust
1: Stuart.
3: Yeah, and like the witches, I just wanted to cut the movie's heart out and eat it. Like, I just, I couldn't stand how smalty this movie was. Like, for a movie that's supposed to be irreverent and, and really take fairy tales to task for maybe having contrived lessons, I feel like this is the most contrived of them all, like... I, honestly, there's no difference between this and a Disney movie. I mean, I would expect this kind of thing from that big-budget Cinderella thing. I mean, I just I there's nothing irreverent here. I mean, a, a couple jokes about brothers killing each other, notwithstanding, it really does lack the humor that I think has been an asset for Matthew Vaughn in some of those other films. But, again, this movie has been so focused on romance that I feel like... It fails in all other capacities, and so you could only like this movie if you wanted to see two cute kids fall in love, but I don't know. I, the word worthless comes to mind. I I really can't... <laughs> can't think of anything about this that I appreciate it. I mean, I honestly, I've seen a lot of worse movies. I want to make this clear. This is not, by any stretch of imagination, one of the worst movies I've ever covered for now playing. But every second it was on, I wanted to run screaming out of the room. I just literally did not want to watch this. And I think the problem is, as you say, Jacob, part of it is that I have no interest in watching any kind of version of this story. But... I also think that this is a failure of filmmaking. I think that this is an unfunny movie that's trying to kid itself into thinking that it's smarter than fairy tales. It's it's a strong not recommend for me and
1: a terrible way of getting back into DC Comics. I'll agree that the first half an hour, I did want to turn this off. I have many other things I could be doing with my time than watching a movie that when my... Wife Marjorie came in at the 30 minute mark and said, How is it? Because, of course, we had the whole bus thing. She was curious if we were wrong. My response to her is, Putrid. If this turns into a green arrow, I'm going to be really amazed. <laughs> but then the movie went on and it wasn't putrid anymore. <laughs> Put that on your poster. <laughs>
2: Come in after the 30-minute mark. It's not putrid.
3: Mm -hmm. Show up 30 minutes late and it won't be putrid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It became a little confusing and I never got into it. But after that 30-minute mark, I didn't see anything really to hate. I didn't see anything to like either. So I was just kind of at that, well, I don't really care moment. And to me, I'm like, well... If I don't really care, but it's a genre that I don't really care about, then that's probably a weak recommend because then people who would actually think of seeking this movie out will like it. (laughs) But talking to you guys, yeah, there is a lot of flaws here that perhaps after the, you know, by comparison to that first act, the rest of it looked great but the rest of it isn't good. It just looked great by comparison.
2: Another tagline for the poster. (laughs) The second half is great compared to the first half.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like saying you'd sleep with Michelle Pfeiffer in that old age makeup instead of her fat sister in the old age makeup. I mean...
3: (laughs) it's a strange hole you're falling down and yet i find myself agreeing i don't even know what you're saying but i think you're right
1: makes more sense than the plot of this film yeah (laughs) so i'm gonna give it a week not recommend you know oh thank god that was the important part (laughs) i just i didn't mind it but (laughs) i did mind that first half hour a lot
2: I just want all of these on the poster. <laughs> I didn't mind it, Arnie Carvalho.
3: Yeah, that nothing you're saying here is saying that you would endorse the movie, which is what a green arrow is. You're endorsing that people seek something out and watch it. That you can imagine someone that might delight in it <laughs> is because someone chewed you out on a bus because they did. I mean, <laughs> that has nothing to do with your experience with the film. And it's more to do with the fact that we know somewhere out there there are people that are gnashing their teeth because this is one of their favorite movies.
1: Well, sometimes we have to review a film based on just style and merit versus personal enjoyment because the chances of me enjoying a film in this genre other than The Princess Bride, which I do love...
3: Into the Woods. If I hadn't just seen Into the Woods last year, I might be more forgiving. But Into the Woods is is a great version of this. Not that it was a great movie, but it's a much better conception of this kind of fairy tales done irreverently
1: and i just think that you say a green arrow is an endorsement and i see a red arrow as a damnation and so i find it hard to damn the movie but unless i think of that first half hour so that's what's tipping the scale for me that first half hour is amateurish but i will give this movie one great compliment It provided Matthew Vaughn a big budget to make an effects movie that would give him the experience he needs to go on to make some of my favorite films of the 21st century. So, in the end, it was all worth it to give me one of my favorite directors.
2: More great praise. A stepping stone so the director can learn how to make a better film. (laughs) Mm, You have to fail in
1: life in order to succeed. Yeah, Ben, so this is that failure. So, (laughs) sadly, it's three red arrows. I almost don't feel like this movie deserves three red arrows, but it's got them. No, I was hoping someone on this podcast would like it. So that they could... I actually
3: wish I could talk to someone who would kindly tell me (laughs) why they enjoy this movie. I just... I literally watch it and I can't understand... Why anyone would find it entertaining. And it has nothing to do with the subject matter or the content. It just literally seems to accomplish nothing. I can't think of anything that it does that's appealing. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm just literally saying I don't get it. Loudly. Admittedly. But I just
1: don't get it. Well, there's a link to our forums from our homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com. And yeah, I mean, I understand there are people who like this movie beyond those two on the bus. But...
2: (laughs) Well, we don't know if they like the movie, they like the book. (laughs) There are people who hate this movie because they like the book.
1: The way they chewed me out, they better fucking like this movie.
2: (laughs) Perhaps they're fans and they could tell us.
1: They better have Captain Shakespeare tattoos on their breasts.
2: (laughs) I hope no one's made that mistake.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's more than it's just not my taste of movie. There's severe storytelling flaws with this movie. Yeah. And I've never seen Ricky Gervais be not funny except here.
3: Yeah, I agree. It isn't just that I don't want to watch a fairy tale. This is not a satisfying fairy tale. I don't even like the lesson. What's the lesson? There's a lesson here? Yeah, in order to mature, he's going to run off to a fictitious land and live in his fake castle with his woman that fell from the sky. I mean, oh, great. That's
1: the same thing as going insane, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> no, I think the choice was leave home, become your own man, and love a woman who loves you. You could go to London.
3: you're acting like the only way to go- to grow is to, like to go across the wall he could have gone to there was a whole other continent go to america there are other ways to mature most of us do that those that want to (laughs) leave their heads in the clouds that to me does
1: not show great sense of maturity that is not going to make you a better man and that brings us into dc now we're going to take a break from dc because we need it already
2: (laughs) yeah we're going to ryan reynolds i'm sure stewart's just excited for this one!
3: Oh, i cannot wait for more ryan reynolds it'll be better than green lantern right right
1: <laughs> i hope this movie's gonna rock i am so jazzed for this movie i am hyped for this movie i'm more excited for deadpool than i was for the force awakens and i'm not even exaggerating that
2: that's weird i i've seen the trailer and it I don't know, we'll see.
1: When I saw the leaked footage for Deadpool and they weren't making the movie, tears were coming to my eyes because it hurt so much to see something that could have been and wasn't. So that this movie was resurrected like a, by a necromancer from the grave and is actually made, I'm hyped. Now it could suck, it is coming out in February.
3: It's a love story. <laughs> People
1: certainly didn't like what Fox
3: did with the Fantastic Four, but uh, who knows?
1: But they also made X-Men First Class, so... I can't
3: damn an entire studio. I will reserve any judgment. I will go into it with the best possible mindset of saying that I have enjoyed many superhero movies, and I will think of those... As opposed to Ryan Reynolds superhero movies that I've seen <laughs> and so many Marvel movies I have not enjoyed. I hope for the best and I'll just save it till next week.
1: So, thank you for joining me. To our listeners, thank you for listening to this show. So, if you would like to hear more of our reviews or read some of our reviews, our book, Underrated Movies We Recommend, is in the final processes of being made. And if you pre-order, you can get this book in hardcover format, signed by Stuart, Jacob, Marjorie, and myself. There's also an audiobook version and a PDF book version. They're all available by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's 125 movies. Each movie, following the formula, is reviewed by three people, so it's 375 movie reviews. Unfortunately, no Matthew Vaughn. Although I think every film he did is underrated because they're not like the top grossing film of all time, except for this one. And so until next week, I will think of you forever and always.
0: You know, when I said I knew little about love, that wasn't true. I know a lot about love. I've seen it. I've seen centuries and centuries of it. And it was the only thing that made watching your world bearable. To see the way that mankind loves. I mean, you could search the furthest reaches of the universe and never find anything more beautiful. So, yes, I, I, I know that love is unconditional. But I also know it can be unpredictable, unexpected, uncontrollable, unbearable. And what I'm trying to say, Tristan, is I think I love you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Mm, I do feel happier, less troubled. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Comics film, featuring all the way through a weekend of release review of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice.
1: You know, it's funny.
0: We used to watch people having adventures. I envy people. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss the DC movies with other listeners. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, The Avengers, X-Men, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four.
1: I could never have imagined an adventure this big in order to have wished for it.
0: You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you tempted? Tempted. No. Immortality. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book. Underrated movies we recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Little things like that make me happy. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. It's share and share alike aboard my vessel, sonny boy! support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating you can find a link to donate using paypal at the bottom of our website nowplayingpodcast.com i would go to the gold fields of san francisco and bring you back your weight in gold (laughs) i go to africa and bring you back a diamond as big as your (laughs) foot. You can also show your love of Now Playing podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. It will be so good to see you out of those dreary clothes. So very small town errand boy, howlingly parochial. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Don't you ever sleep? Not at night. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I, uh, I merely relay to you what the rules have told me. I can do no more. Now playing is not affiliated with DC Comics, Marv Films, or Paramount Pictures, and no infringement is intended. The young man returned that night to his home in England, hoping that his adventure would soon be forgotten. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vingonza Media Incorporated. I don't know you can be trusted. You don't. Why, do you have a choice? Yeah. Well uh, let's go. Now Playing is of Vingonza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vingonza Media Incorporated. Still live happily ever after.
1: Well, now he's Daredevil. I mean, he okay. is Daredevil from the Netflix series. I
3: <laughs> big time. I mean, I know people like that, but to be like that, that thats your top of your resumes.
2: Come on, we got Billy Crudup returning. We- we do? No, no, we don't. We have his adulterous girlfriend here. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, why don't you tell him what you saw? Let's give him the plot. Let's see what we think of
1: Stardust. Oh, so many characters, so many factions. <laughs>
2: It kind of does feel like Lord of the Rings in that way.
1: Uh, at least there's no names I'm going to feel like a douchebag saying.
2: Septimus. All right,
1: you may have me on one. I <laughs> <laughs> so kept thinking septic. septic
2: That's how I think of this movie too, septic. <laughs> <laughs> That's my line. <laughs> oh, well, I, I was using it as a blooper.
1: That is, I was
2: actually eating a bagel. I would have said that. <laughs>
1: Una had left her son a Babylon candle that allows instant travel to anywhere. Jesus Christ.
2: <laughs> Come on, you feel like an asshole <laughs> saying Babylon candle. I mean,
3: can you just listen to this plot and realize, like, I don't even need to hear this show? Click turning this off. Like, you do not need to hear us go through this story. Fucking a, a goddamn movie about fucking burning candles. <laughs> like a major device in this. No swords, no whatever, but yeah, they'll fucking light a candle.
1: Uh. But rather than a hunk of rock, Tristan finds out that in Stormhold, a fallen star becomes a gorgeous woman.
2: Or Claire Danes.
1: <laughs> Played by Claire Danes.
3: Some people think Claire Danes is cute. Gorgeous is maybe a tough word.
1: Star, too. <laughs> She's portrayed as gorgeous. This film is selling us she's gorgeous. Is that what this film's selling?
2: <laughs> it's got to sell you a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Am I pronouncing this right? You vain? Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Okay. Because vain would be too obvious.
3: <laughs> and returns to him nine months later to give him... His son, he didn't know that he sired.
1: Maybe it's just, this is the reenactment of hearts. All I Want to Do is Make Love to You song. Maybe what the princess really wanted was a baby. (laughs) Yeah,
3: does anyone know that song? (laughs) I remember that, but wow, you're pulling something out there. (laughs) Couldn't we have just been set in Stronghold? Is it Stronghold? Stormhold. Yeah, (laughs) shut up. I want a strong bow. is what it is. I don't you know. I'm thinking about like hard cider. I want a strong bow.
1: I actually have one right now drinking it.
3: Are you really? Yes, I am. It's our <laughs> drink of choice these days. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. And I need something to get me through this podcast. <laughs> I really don't want to see any Robert De Niro movie after 1995, but
1: I still say that boxing one with Sylvester Stallone's worth a watch. I would never go see that. I'm sorry, I would never, <laughs> ever,
3: ever see that film under any circumstance.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I could not tell you what his role in the plot. I know he ends up croaking like a frog at some point.
1: Yeah, he's he's there because Robert De Niro is trying to sell i don't know just cut that i don't fucking know yeah (laughs) no that's blooper shit
2: no leave that in because that tells you
3: i love that this is the guy that's gonna give this a green arrow and he's like you guys are talking
1: me out of that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i told marjorie beforehand i'm like it's a weak recommend but i could be swayed yeah i don't know what to recommend here, what? I was going to say, I don't know what not to recommend, but you guys are to giving me plenty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> say they rule for 80 years and turn into stars. It works for me in Clash of the Titans, but it just isn't working for me here. You like Clash of the Titans? Which one are we talking about? Any of them. The 80s one. That was bad, too.
2: It's not great, but it's kind of fun. I liked it as a kid, but I have not seen it since then.
1: Maybe we'll do a retrospective if they ever do a third one.
2: Nope. Ooh, no, because I... I what, what was the sequel they, they did to the... Wrath of the Titans. Oh, I saw that one. That is... Ooh, talk about wrath. I have not seen that one.
1: Trash of the Titans. Yeah. And don't forget, at our homepage, click the banner at the top if you want to hear if you want to re- hear or read us review. Read us review.
3: Read us,
2: huh? <laughs> you, you write good. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it should be said, it's like one in the morning your time. I mean,
2: one <laughs>
1: thirty.
3: <1:30. laughs> there's a certain hour where I lose the ability to use my mouth, so I understand where you're at.
1: That happens to me too, which makes for some very uncomfortable dates. Ah! I saw Charles Bronson and Robert De Niro do it in Midnight Run...